Our sermon this morning is found in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 9 and verse 1. Didn't the choir sound good this morning? I don't even know what was wrong with the first time around, to be honest. Uh, I, I just think you wanted an encore, Don. <laughs> Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from every, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, uh, we come now to hear from you through your word. And as the choir reminded us this morning, that we pray that you would help us not to miss your glory, that we would see you through your word, the revelation which you have handed down to us and preserved for us for ages and ages and ages. And now you call these your children, sons and daughters together on this day, that you may reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that you would do so. We ask that you would help us through your spirit to understand your truth and apply it to our lives that we may leave this place different because we have encountered and heard from the one true God. And so help us now. I pray that you would encourage the downcast and that you would exhort the lazy. I pray that you would convict the sinner. And I pray that you would honor yourself for your glory. 
and for our great and eternal gain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 1967, what is now forever known as the Night of the Grizzlies, two people in Glacier National Park and several separate ends of the park were pulled out of their tent in the middle of the night by separate grizzly bears, dragged away and eaten. This had a massive impact on those who enjoy backpacking. Um, Many people gave it up. Many people never strapped a pack on their back again out of fear of what lurks around at night. Of course, if you've gotten to know me by now, you know that my, one of my great joys and delights is to strap 60 pounds on my pack and climb up a mountain and, and hike in for days and, and to live out there in God's creation. I find it incredibly invigorating. I feel close to God. I feel I feel like he does a good work in my life, and I, I greatly delight in it. And I also delight in the fact that most people don't delight in it. Um, many people don't appreciate the exhaustion and the sore hips and the twisted ankles and the bloody feet and the terrible food and the troubling weather that it all brings. For many people, though, the, the greatest um, trouble if you take them backpacking is sleeping. Of course, it's not a comfortable night's sleep. You sleep on a thin pad in a sleeping bag. You're generally either too hot or too, too cold. But the troubling idea for many people is the fact you're in this tent and you are perhaps uh, over a day from the nearest road or miles from the nearest person on the side of a mountain, not knowing what else is out there, what lurks in the darkness. Of course, this is somewhat of an irrational fear. There's been only 82 fatal bear attacks in the last 88 years in America. And irrational or not, I still sleep with a knife, to be perfectly honest. I take that in with me. And um, it it may, may, the statistics explain that it's very infrequent to be attacked by a bear in the backcountry. But nevertheless, you hear something walking around your tent in the middle of the night. Um, The statistics are not very comforting. In fact, there was a time when I was snowshoeing in uh, 06 in the Rocky Mountain National Park, and I was in the backcountry for about uh, four days, and uh, I was completely lost and having a wonderful time. And um, it it would snow on us every night, and uh, one night it snowed on us, and then it froze over, and so the snow became frozen. And about 2 a.m. in the morning, I began to hear uh, footfalls outside my tent and began to circle my tent, and uh, they kept circling and getting closer and closer. And, well, you think it will go away eventually, but when it begins to sniff at your tent, um, that's a whole other uh, issue altogether. But praise the Lord, I stand here today, and therefore, evidently, what it smelt was not appealing to it at all. Um, But many people who who experience such a traumatic event will say, okay, I'm done with that. Uh, I I don't want to do that again. I'm going to give that up. Well, I I wonder uh, about our brother Noah as we consider his scripture today. I wonder about the trauma that Noah experienced. Do you, do you picture Noah emerging from the ark after living through the outpouring of the wrath of God? You, you imagine the trauma, the, 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 the impact that that must have uh, laid upon him. I wonder if we even think, how is Noah going to go on living now that he's experienced what he did? 
We talk today about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the idea that uh, after a great traumatic event, life becomes very stressful and very difficult. Well, I imagine our brother and what he must have uh, endured when he lay down and slept at night. I wonder what dreams kept him awake, or I wonder what terror must have happened at a sound of a thunderclap, or what fear was in his heart at an approaching storm. And imagine that it would be incredibly difficult to go on with life as Noah emerges from this ark. And so God, in his great graciousness, gives Noah certain promises. He gives him a covenant to remove Noah's fear. We saw in Genesis chapter 6 that God had entered into a covenant with Noah. And now again in Genesis chapter 9, he enters in a new covenant with Noah. And just not Noah, by the way, but it's a covenant that, that you and I are in with God. That we are the beneficiaries this very day of this covenant with Noah. And so Noah gets this covenant. But before he does, God begins to instruct him on how to live in this new world. We know in our study of Genesis that God had waited for about 2,000 years for man to end its rebellion, for man to fix his sin problem, but rather than fixing it, things began to get worse and worse, and the world became filled with corruption and violence and rebellion, and God looked upon the earth as we saw in Genesis 6 and verse 5, and he was grieved that he had made man. He was heartbroken because all man did was rebel against him, and so therefore God decided to move up the execution day of all humanity on the very same day. Of course, he announced way back in Genesis 2 that when you sin, death will follow. Well, on this day, he decided to move it up all on one day. He'll do the same when Christ returns, by the way. And so God flooded the earth. But before he did, he offered grace to Noah. Noah found favor. And God said, I want you to build an ark for 120 years. Noah built an ark. And while he did, he preached righteousness. But no one repented. No one came aboard. And one day God told Noah and his sons and his sons' wives and Noah's wife to enter the ark. And God shut him in and flooded the earth and destroyed everything and everyone. Noah lived upon that boat for a year, as we saw last week, or la- yeah, last Sunday. And eventually he comes out and he begins to worship God, immediately worshiping God, thanking God for the grace that covered his sin, the grace in which he has received, for he was not washed away with that flood. He received God's grace and he praised God for that. And now he is here upon this new world. Just his sons and his son's wives and his wife and no one else in the world. It's it's a brand new world. And and I think the Bible kind of presents the question, well, what's it going to be like in this world? How are we to live in this world? What are the rules uh, on which Noah should live? And so God, before he gives Noah the promises that he does, begins to set out, okay, this is how life should be ordered in this new world. In fact, we see Noah is very much like a, a second Adam. You see, God is starting over. This is kind of creation take two. And God is not going to give up on creation, even though sin has entered into it. He plans to redeem it all. You and I are the first fruits of that redemption. And one day he'll redeem this entire earth. And so God says, I'm not, I'm not going to let sin win. We're going to start over. And Noah is po- uh, pictured for us in the scripture as a second Adam. I mean, just like the first Adam, um, Noah emerged from this watery world of chaos. We also see that for, for both these individuals, they're surrounded by animals of every kind. They're both said to be God's image bearers. Both Adam and Noah are told to be fruitful and multiply. Both are given rule over animals. Both are farmers. Both have three sons. And in both of them, one of their sons commits a terrible sin in which he is cursed. They're, even their sins are similar. Of course, both Adam and Noah will sin. Both will sin through the, through the fruit of the trees. 
Their sin will both in the, result in shameful nakedness and they will both have their nakedness covered as a picture of taking away their sin. And so we see God starting over in this world. He's beginning to give them rules. How's it will you live? And Noah needs to learn those rules. I don't know if you ever traveled abroad, but you, you go to a different culture. Things are different there. And it's very helpful to know the rules of that culture. A number of years ago, I traveled to Azerbaijan on a mission trip. And I learned very quickly that men don't speak to women in Azerbaijan. You don't blow your nose in public, by the way, if you're ever there in Azerbaijan. Um, you, you don't offer to pay in case someone offers you, takes you out for tea. And so the rules are, uh, are different in these cultures. In fact, last summer I was backpacking on the Pacific island of Tana distributing Bibles into um, unreached villages. And I would walk into these villages, as I shared with you, and present the gospel and give them the written word of God for the first time. Well, one evening we approached a village and it was getting towards dusk and we were hoping that we were gonna, would be able to stay in that village. Well, we asked if we could stay and we could only stay if the red man drank the kava. And I said, okay, I'll drink kava. What's kava? Well, kava is a root that you dig up that the men without beards, that is their boys, chew up to a cud. And then once they chew up the cud, they spit it out on a banana leaf. And then you take the cud and you strain it into the, through, with water into a coconut, uh, half coconut, and now you have kava. And uh, so they all, the village gathered around as what they, they called the red man, drank the kava as they all watched. And uh, I'll tell you, just in case you're wondering, it kind of tastes like spit, um, <laughs> with just a hint of dirt. So, um, and uh, I drank the kava and everybody was happy, um, except me. Uh, <laughs> but you need, see, when you go to a, different, a new place, there, there are rules by which you live by. Well, Noah here enters this new world, and God says, okay, here are the rules in which we want you, which, which you're going to live by. In fact, we see here upon this new world that God gives commands, which would be my first point this morning, is what people do, and then God gives promises. That's what God does. So what, what do people do? What does God do? So let's first consider God's commands as we look at God's word. Verse 1 tells us, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, let's just stop there for a moment. You notice that God is about to give a series of commands. God is about to speak. And when God speaks, he doesn't give suggestions. He's not opening up for dialogue. He's not saying, okay, let's get together and think of some rules. What do you think? I was thinking of this. No, these are God. God is saying, I'm in charge. I've made this world. You're to obey. And I think it's important. I just want to point this out you notice that God won't talk to Noah about any of these rules except telling them what the rules are. And we find ourselves in a day where we want to find our own way. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. We want to redefine what God has created for us. And we are going to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. But friends, I'm telling you, that's not our prerogative. When you create a world, you get to decide what's right or wrong on that world. But when you live on someone else's world, namely the Creator, our God, He tells you how to live. Your role is simply to obey. And the glorious thing is that the commands that He gives us are for our good. You notice, first of all, the command to fill the earth. Verse 1 tells us, And God blessed Noah and his sons and, and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I love the fact that, once again, Genesis reminds us that God blessed Noah. I think blessing is a theme in the book of Genesis. It's mentioned 80 times that God blesses. God loves to bless. God is a God who blesses. 
And so let me tell you uh, this morning that your family is a blessing from God. And that your health health is a blessing from God. And the fact that you have your needs met is a blessing from God. The fact that you are forgiven of your sins is a blessing from God. The Bible tells us that people are bad, but God is good and He loves to bless. And so God, at this very beginning of this new world with Noah's, we see God immediately pouring out blessings upon His creation. The blessing very specific here we see is linked to being fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Which reminds us, once again, I don't know if you've heard this, but children are a blessing. You all say that with me? Children are a blessing. We need to be aware of that because our culture tells us something entirely different. The Bible comes and confronts us with the truth. No, no, no. Children are not a burden. Children are not something to, to get past. But children are the way God blesses us. And so I don't want to be political here this morning, but I want to say in a very general sense, God is pro-life. That is, God celebrates life. God loves life. God gives life. God is the resurrection and the life. And God will give you, if you bow your knee to Jesus, eternal life. God loves life. And we see this here that God is blessing us so that we can have life. And he wants his image bearers to fill this world because the image bearers are the pinnacle of his creation. And he wants his world covered with his likeness. And so he tells Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Now, I can't imagine what that conversation must have been like because they know the earth is rather large. And can you imagine hearing that God coming to you and say, okay, it's empty. You need to fill it. And I could just imagine Noah looking at his wife and said, you heard the man, um, right? We, we, we need to get to work. And uh, she's probably looking at her husband saying, oh boy, um, this is a big earth. And uh, so there's a lot of work to be done, but this is what God wants us to do. It's a good and glorious command. And, uh, and here we know, of course, Scripture teaches us that we all are descended from Noah and his boys. Noah is all our granddads. I don't care what color your skin is or what language you speak or what nation you come from. You and I have the same granddaddy. His name is Noah, which means that you and I, as we say down south, are kin, right? We are cousins. And so we should discard any ridiculous nonsense of racism or nationalism or prejudice against people that are different than us because people aren't different than us. We are all made in God's image. We are all made in his likeness. And we all come from the same family. And God says, I want you to fill the earth. But he goes on and gives a second command, doesn't he? He says, I want you to rule creation. Look what he says in verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every birds of the heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands. They are delivered. And so you see that things are not like Eden, right? Very different. He says there's in Eden, it was very good. It seems like the animals were not afraid of Adam and Eve. They just kind of, God brought them to Adam. But now it seems, he says, well, now the animals will fear you and the animals will, will be in dread of you. And so he still has this authority over them. He's, the Bible says, into your hands they are delivered. You still have dominion over this world. But it's different. It's, it's changed. It's not as good as it once was. But what God is teaching us here is there's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy in creation, and man sits upon the top, and man has authority over everything upon this earth. And God says, I've given them into your hands. I delivered them to you. And for what purpose? Well, verse 3, at least one of the purposes, tells us for food. You see verse 3? The Bible says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
as I gave you the green plants, that's past tense. Remember in the garden, they could eat what? From every tree of the, of the garden. And then even when they're kicked out of the garden, you know, remember what um, Adam's job was. He was a farmer. God says, by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will eat the bread. They're labor. So they're farmers. And, it, and here he says, as I gave you the green plants, now what? I give you everything. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, he says. And so this is the beginning of meat, right? This is the origin of grilling. And, and here it is in Scripture. God, when they were in the garden, they were vegetarians. They were eating from fruit trees. And God now says, I want you to have a steak. Okay? And I say, amen. I don't know what's wrong with you all. That, to me, is a very easy command to obey. God's commands are easy, right? You like meat? Anyone? You like steak? You like chicken? All right. Well, praise God. Um, and you don't praise the cow or the chicken. You praise God who made the cow and the chicken for you. He has given that to you. It's great provision. So this is my theology of meat. It is good. And you should eat it. And we see very clearly that God gives it to us to eat. You know, we're getting a lot of theology in our study of Genesis. Remember, we got a theology of pie. All right? You bake pie on Tuesday. We have a theology of children. Children are good. And even meat is good. And we praise the Lord that God gives us this generous and wonderful provision. But just like with Adam, there's a restriction. For you note verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Right? There's something you're not allowed to eat. And, and that's blood. That's why we drain the blood out of animals. God told us to. Right? You're not allowed to eat that. In fact, he calls the blood something else. He calls it its life, doesn't he? Sometimes this is translated as lifeblood. And God says, you can eat the animal, but you cannot consume its blood. Because I, th- I think what he's pointing to is that is reserved for another purpose. That blood is reserved for something else. And that's to cover sin. A substitute for sin. I think God is pointing ahead to a sacrificial system. Leviticus 17 will tell us that it's not the animal that makes the atonement, but it is the animal's blood. And so the blood of the animal, the life of the animal is given up for the life of a sinner. There's an exchange there. There's a substitution. But we see that God not only tells us to rule creation, but he tells us here to punish sin. Verse 5. And for your life, bud, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So he, he moves. I don't know if you notice this. From verse 4, he's talking about the lifeblood of the animal. In the verse 5, he's, then he says, your lifeblood. Right? So now he's moved from an animal to a human. He says, I require a reckoning. Right? I require a reckoning if the lifeblood of a man or woman is spilt. And that reckoning will come either from a beast. If a beast spills, kills a human. Or, or if a human murders a human. God says there's a reckoning. The reckoning is told us in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, right? If you murder a man, by man shall his blood be shed. And so God is instituting capital punishment. He's telling us that you are to execute the man who murders another person. In fact, you don't not only execute a person, you, you would execute an animal. We, of course, do this today. If a dog kills a person, what do we do with the dog? We, we, well, we put the dog down, right? We, we kill the dog. We execute it. And we see this in Scripture. Exodus 21 tells us, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Right? And so, so humans can kill animals. But you notice animals cannot what? They cannot kill humans. 
This is the order in which God has given us. You're allowed to kill animals and eat them, but if an animal kills a human, it's to be executed because human life is superior. And so I, I just want to, I, I probably shouldn't have to say this, but I, I'm going to. I want you to understand that human life is more valuable than animal life, right? Your pets, by the way, are not children. Now, I know you love your pets and they're very dear to you, but a dog is a dog, right? A child is a child and a, a cat is um, from the devil. I don't know, all right? Um, but, but they're not, they're not. I was watching the news the other day and this woman told, told the news anchor her career and she says, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mommy, mommy of two pugs. And I said, no, well, not real. I'm not sure she loves her pugs, very important to her. But, but there's a hierarchy. Scripture point, puts a hierarchy. And we'll see what happens is if we begin to teach that we are, are, are just evolved from some other form of primate, that we're just another branch upon the evolutionary tree, we strip any value dignity and worth that is attributed to humanity. We're just a different branch on the same tree. And so it's all uh, of equal value. And so you have organizations like the, like the people for the ethical treatment of animals who will tell you, I quote them, a pig is a dog, is a rat, is a boy. Right? You hear that? A pig is a dog, is a rat, is a boy. In other words, with this mentality, there's no difference, no value difference between a pig and a person or a dog and a boy. And so if the pig and the person is sick, I mean, who do you take to the hospital? You flip a coin. Uh, I appreciate Mark Driscoll, Pastor Mark Driscoll says, if a boy and a dog run in front of your car, well, you as a Christian don't need to pray about who to hit. Right? You aim for the dog. I mean, the dog has value, but it does not have the value of, of, a, of a boy, of a child. God has, has made us in his image. In fact, we see that at the end of verse 6, Right? For God made man in his own image. And so God is saying, okay, if someone murders a human, whether, whether it be an animal or another human, you're to execute them because human life is valuable. Human life is valuable. And you demonstrate how, what, how you value something by what you give up for it. Right? If, if someone kills a person and you put them in jail for five days, you demonstrate the value of, that, of the human life that was taken by the sentence. And God has incredible value for human life. And so he says that man is made in my image, therefore you may not take that life. If you do, your life is forfeit in order to esteem the value of the life that was taken. God says, I want you to live. You're not allowed to kill each other. There's the rules he gives us. I do want to mention here, I think it's hinted at, um, but I, I believe this is, if you will, the beginning of government. I believe this is the beginning of the rule of law which God has given us where he very clearly is authorizing other men to have this judicial decree against uh, someone who commits a crime. And so the reckoning, we're not waiting for God to come for the reckoning. He's giving that authority to other people in order to institute that reckoning. And so we have, I think, the foundations of government here, the foundations of, of law here. When we get to Romans 13, we'll see very clearly what God thinks about government. And what he thinks about government is that it is to be a blessing to us. And I know that's hard to swallow these days in the land we live. But God has said, I want government to bless you. Because if you don't have the rule of the government or the rule of law, you have the rule of might, you have the rule of wealth, you have the rule of power, which means most of us are in trouble here. And so God says, I, I want to be blessed you. I'm going to give you this rule of law. And the government is given to us. What scripture tells us is namely for two things, is to punish evil and to reward good. 
So government is, is designed to punish evil and to reward good. It's not designed to fix every problem humans encounter or to provide every conceivable good to every conceivable person, but it's to restrain evil, thereby promoting an environment where humans can flourish without fear. And so we see God giving this to us graciously. And then in verse 7, in case we missed it the first time, and you be fruitful, multiply, team, uh, team on the earth and multiply in it. He says, have kids. Right, and so I want to be clear here. Um, does that mean you have seven kids? Um, I recommend it, but that's not what it means. Um, right? Does it mean you have a large family? Well, not necessarily. Uh, but it, I think it does mean you, you, you try to have kids. I think that's one of the purposes of marriage. Is God clearly wants there to be children. And Noah's boys will, will agree with him. Noah will have 16 grandsons and and many, many granddaughters as well. And so they are obedient to this. So we, we see the rules which God gives. But then he moves to the promises. Well, okay, now this is how you're to live. Now what is God going to do upon this earth? And he gives this, this promise. And I think he needs to because no one must be thinking, okay, I fill the earth with offspring. Well, what happens if we sin again? And then you're just going to judge it and wipe everything out. And then, and then we'll start over again. We'll sin and then you'll judge and wipe everything out. We'll just keep repeating until God says, okay, I'm not repeating anymore. And so God says, okay, I want you to fill the earth, but, but here's my, my covenant I'm going to enter in. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. God makes promises. The, the bulk of the promise is found in verse 11. It says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God, in his great grace, says, I'll never destroy the earth again by means of flood. From, from this point on, the world gets mercy. Gets mercy. And I mean the world gets mercy because the covenant is universal. Notice again, verse 8, Then the Lord God said to Noah and to his sons with him. So he's talking to all four of them. Behold, verse 9, I establish my covenant with you. That's plural. So he's referring to Noah and his sons, my covenant's with you, but not at all, and your offspring after you. Who's that? Well, that's us. That's us, and just not us, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of, of the earth. And so the covenant which God enters is not for, for a family or a nation, but it is a covenant for all, all people. In fact, not all, even all people, but all life. Right? And many of God's covenants are limited. The, the Mosaic covenant was limited to the nation of Israel and those who would join them. But, but this covenant applies to everyone. To those who love Jesus, and to those who hate Jesus, and to those in between. Right? It, go, it doesn't matter if you trust Him. It doesn't matter if you love Him. He is going to give this grace to everyone. That's amazing to me. In fact, if, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We are delighted that you're here today. And, and I, I, I want to tell you this great and glorious news that you are in a covenantal relationship with your Creator. And He has decreed from old that He will never destroy you and this world by means of flood. This is His grace to you. The purpose of this grace is to lead you to saving grace. See, God gives common grace to everyone in the hopes that it will lead them to a relationship with Him. And I think, I think perhaps one day He's going to want to know what we did with all of His grace that we enjoy every day. And, and did it lead us to a relationship with him? Did it lead us to bowing our knee to King Jesus? So it's a universal covenant. Of course, some people may, may protest and they say, well, listen, I, I never asked for this covenant. I never said, okay, will you bring, give me these promises? Well, um, I would tell you that this covenant is unilateral. 
It is a unilateral covenant. God says in verse 9, I establish my covenant with you. Same thing in verse 11. Verse 12, the covenant which I make between me and you. Verse 17, he says, the covenant I have established. So God doesn't ask your opinion. He's not entering negotiations. He's not going to take a vote. He doesn't even care if you acknowledge the covenant in which he's given you. It's, It's unilateral. In fact, I think all of God's covenants are unilateral. He always kind of says, okay, this is the promises, this is the, these are the vows, this is what you'll do, this is what I do. And he never opens it up to debate. He initiates it, he lays it down, he says, this is the way it's going to be. I think many people miss the offer of salvation because they don't like the terms upon which God has given. And they say, well, I want to be saved, but I want to do it apart from Jesus. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be saved, but I don't want to, I want it to be based upon my works. Well, God is not opening that up for negotiation. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is the way. He is the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Him. This is the covenant which God has established with us as we enjoy the new covenant. And so God has this unilateral covenant. And, and, and people will think, well, what happens if we sin? What happens if we rebel again? Will God break that covenant? Well, not, not this one because it's unconditional. Right? Some, some covenants are conditional. Right? If you do something then God will do something else. If you don't do that, God will, God will withhold that or do something else entirely. For instance, the covenant with the nation of Israel was a conditional covenant. The Bible says in Exodus 19, as God enters that covenant with him, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, right? If you do this, then you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And so if you do this, then I will, I will make you my treasured people. It's a conditional covenant. But this covenant is, is entirely unconditional. No matter what you do, God is going to keep it, right? Uh, we, we saw this back in, in uh, last week, and I just want to return there for a moment. Chapter 8 and verse 21, right? It, it says, after Noah worshiped God, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, here it is, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And now this is interesting. For the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth, right? He said, I'll never flood this world again. But it's not because you're better, not because you learn your lesson, not because you're not going to sin. He says, e- even though you're going to sin, even though you're sinful from youth, I'm never going to do it. And the reality is, is God will never revoke this covenant. It doesn't matter how much this world sins. It doesn't matter how much we rebel. He's not going to do it again. I'm not, he says, I'm not going to do it no matter what. And therefore, everybody and everything is benefiting by it. And we still do so today because you see it's an unending covenant. We saw this in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that, here it is, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Look in verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all earth. Never again. Never again. Never again, God says. And when God says never, he, he means it. When we say never uh, we, we probably not, ought not to say never, to be honest. Um, we, see, we say, well, I learned my lesson, I'll never do that again. Right, 15 minutes later, what are we doing? Um, we're often doing it again. I remember Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Right? And, and Peter is just moments later running away like a scared schoolgirl. We ought probably never say never, but when God says never, we can trust him, can't we? 
And Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he perish, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When God says never, he means never. The Bible tells us that we live in, uh, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here, God promises this covenant is unending. It will last forever and ever. And lastly, consider that it is an unforgettable covenant. God's going to remind us of this covenant continually, over and over again. And he's going to do so through the rainbow. Some suggest it's the first rainbow that ever appeared. One commentator says, while God was speaking to Noah, God spread a beautiful rainbow across the sky. And while Noah was gasping in awe, God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I don't know if it's the first rainbow. Maybe he's just giving meaning to the rainbow. But I think it's an entirely appropriate sign because the rainbow, as he says three times, always appears in the clouds. And so when the clouds come and when the rain falls, the rainbow is our reassurance that it will stop. It will not keep raining. It will not keep flooding. God says, I will, in verse 13, hang my bow in the sky. It's the same word used for a warrior's bow. It looks like a warrior's bow. God is in some saying, some sense saying, you and I were at hostility with one another. I was at enmity with you, but I will put my bow aside. I will not aim it at you anymore. I shall aim it up into the sky. It is at rest. I will not destroy you with a flood. And so God gives us this great and glorious reminder of this covenant. A rainbow, of course, is a, is a, is a prism that takes white light and re- reflects it into all the color spectrum of, of light. Um, and it's a beautiful, glorious display. And God says, I don't want you, as the choir reminded us, I don't want you to miss this glory. Don't, don't, don't miss it. Understand why, why I gave it to you. When we see a rainbow, we ought to realize it could, keep, it could have kept raining. It probably should have kept raining. And probably God should have just wiped us off the face of the earth because of our rebellion and sin. And yet God is good and God is gracious and it's a reminder of God's grace. And, and I don't mean to offend, but I want to be very clear. That the rainbow is never intended to be a sign of gay pride. It's not a sign of celebrating sin. It's a sign that God one day destroyed every living person on this earth except eight. And then he said, I won't do that again. And that's the great and glorious sign. That's his promise that God is gracious and merciful and has given us time. Every day is more time to live before we face him. I think Noah needed this assurance. Don't you think Noah was blessed by this? After he lived through that, what a blessing it would have been when he saw the the clouds and the storm were accompanied by a promise, a sign that God would not flood the world. What reassurance he must have had. I once read a a Peanuts cartoon when it had Linus and Lucy looking out the window at a steady downpour. Boy, said Lucy, look at the rain. What if the whole world floods again, she asked. It will never do that, Linus replied confidently. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy responded, relieved, you've taken a great load off my mind, in which Linus said, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) Praise the Lord for sound theology. Good, biblical, peanuts theology, right? Uh, Scriptural theology. It ought to take a load off your mind. God says, you remember the promise I made with you. I will never judge you again. In fact, the glorious thing is that God puts it in the sky, not simply for you to remember, but you know, verse 15, he says, 
I will remember. And again in verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant that is between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God will put the bow in the sky to remind Himself that He has promised to be gracious to this world. It is a sign of His mercy that we rejoice in even today. In fact, God, when He enters into covenants, He there's always a sign. There's always a symbol of that covenant. You know, we, we practice that today. I, I wear the sign of my covenant upon my left hand, declaring that I have made vows to my beloved, saying that, that I take her as my lawfully wedded wife from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, forsaking all others. Till death do us part. It's my vows, my promises. When Abraham entered a promise with God, God said, this is the sign of the covenant. And Abraham circumcised himself and all who would enter that covenant. And now you and I are in a covenant even much greater than the covenant given to Noah. It's the covenant that Jesus spoke of at the Last Supper, the Passover meal, when he lifted up that cup. And what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant we enter into. It's a covenant that God has invited us to enter into. And we're in a moment going to participate in this covenant. This, this sign of this covenant. And when you hold that cup in your hand, my hope is that, especially if you perhaps have reoccurring uh, guilt from past sin or struggle with assurance of salvation, that you would look away from your own struggles and look to the work of Christ, His spilt blood on the cross for you. And this will be a reassurance for you that you are in a relationship with God, that Christ has done all the work for you by spilling His blood. That you'll be reassured that this covenant, because of this communion table, is an unforgettable covenant. It's also a unilateral covenant. It's God's idea. He brought it about. It's a universal covenant in the sense that not a, it doesn't apply to every single person, but it applies to every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. It's an eternal covenant. God will never change the terms of it. In fact, the only difference between um, this covenant and the covenant with Noah is it's not unconditional. This is a conditional covenant. That, that is, you need to enter into it. The Bible tells us you enter into this covenant by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, by bowing your knee to Christ as Lord. Scripture tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we are about to celebrate this covenant meal. We're about to remember what Christ has done for us and the relationship that we are in. But perhaps you're here today and you're not in that covenant. Perhaps you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ. You've never bowed your knee to him. I invite you, based upon the authority of God's word, to tell you that you can have forgiveness of sin, adoption into God's family, eternal life, and eternity in a resurrected body upon a new earth in the presence of your maker forever and ever and ever. If you will simply despair of your own sin and your own works and trust in Christ. And you could do that even now. In the silence of your heart, place your faith in Jesus. And for the rest of us, we come to this covenant to remember what Christ has done. And as we do, I want to give you an opportunity as scripture instructs us to examine ourselves that we come to this meal as sinners saved by grace, rejoicing in grace, but we don't come lightheartedly. We don't come haphazardly. We come repenting of the sin that is in our life. And so in Scripture tells us to let a person examine himself then and then eat of the meal. And so I give you an opportunity to silently pray now, asking God to reveal any sin in your life 
that you may turn it over to him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your work for us through your Son. We rejoice that Jesus himself said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. That eternal life was purchased for us through his death, through his broken body and spilt blood, and through his resurrection. We thank you that you have put faith in our hearts that we may trust him that you have put a willingness to repent from our sins. And we rejoice in this meal which we are now about to participate. I pray that we would not miss the glory of it. I pray that we would not be so accustomed to it, that we would miss the glory that the Son of God lived a perfect life and died a gruesome, bloody death so that sinners such as us may be yours. And so help us to rejoice in grace. Help us to rejoice in our Savior. Help us to turn from sin for which he died. I pray that you would give us a hatred for it, the sin that lurks within each of us, and that we would turn our back upon it once again, rejoicing that we have been saved from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will the deacons now come?